0: Welcome to the Garland podcast and we're here with uh, Rosie Cook, whose article in the current issue, uh, Lessons Learned from a Duck Herder's Gamelan, was I think one of the more surprising articles that we've featured and certainly warranted uh, more conversation to understand the intricacies of uh, what was a very complex cultural interaction uh, involving uh, musical instruments in Indonesia and I think there's a lot for us to learn there and we're very pleased to have Rosie Cook with us. And where are you?
1: Uh, I'm currently living in the south of Taiwan in Kaohsiung, which uh, is the second largest city in Taiwan, but it's actually quite sleepy. Um, I live out close to the mountains, so it does feel like a a little country lifestyle in the islands. (laughs) And I work at the Conservation Center at Zhongxiu University, um, where I've been running the textiles conservation
0: department since last year. That's interesting. We're, we're getting a few articles related to these kinds of specialisations from archaeologists. We've got an upcoming article from an archivist. Uh, I think this is our first in terms of somebody working in conservation. Um, how, how does a person like you get into conservation? What's what's the path? How did you first take an interest in it?
1: Well. I've, I've always loved art and culture, which I guess a lot of people can say um, and I studied art history in high school and in university. And uh, I did briefly consider art conservation when I, about 20 years ago, <laughs> um, but I grew up in France. I was educated in France and they have a very thorough conservation education system, which is uh, focused on fine arts and lasts for, I think, uh, five to seven years. And to be honest, when I was a teenager, I, I didn't even really feel like going to university. So entering the, it's quite an exclusive uh, concours, competitive training system there, where only the best get through to the next level. So um, it was, by the time I circled back to conservation, I was in my late 20s, um, by which point I'd become very driven and knew myself quite well. And so from the moment I saw the conservation labs at the... Um, in the prado in madrid i was on a short holiday stop there uh, i just knew immediately it was the perfect career for me it's the blend of arts and creativity and problem solving and, and most of all you get this such an exclusive and really intimate relationship with um with an, any artifact that you're conserving um because hardly anyone gets to touch it at least that was what drew it drew me to conservation at the time um so yeah and by then I was living semi-permanently in Australia so I was able to study in Melbourne um, and it still took me four years to get my qualification but uh, you've become a bit more patient with age I suppose.
0: Yes and your, your article or your story tells a very interesting account of how conservation turned out for you to be more than just simply technical problem solving but also involve uh, complex cultural encounters and you talked about a uh, Uh, conversation with a Maori student. Uh, What happened in that conversation? Can you set the scene?
1: Well, it's it's kind of funny to look back at now because at the time I was a little bit hurt. I may have been a little bit tearful after class when I sat down and tried to process it. Um, We'd been discussing in class the conservation of religious and sacred artifacts and the concept of whether or not any given conservator has the right to work on a ceremonial or religious or sacred object. Um, for example, there's there are materials that might not be appropriate. Um, the Islamic Arts Museum Malaysia don't do not use ethanol in their conservation labs, for an example. Um, but there may also be restrictions about whether a person from outside the object's um, spiritual or religious from outside the faith can even handle the object Uh, and one of the major restrictions that comes up um, Can be that women may not be permitted to handle certain sacred objects um, and non-believers, of course Uh, And I had asked You know, how how should we even choose the right person to consult to ask? um, to find out if we are able to to conserve a specific object and the class was being taught by a visiting professor who said something along the lines of um, if you aren't sure it may be better to just refer the project on to someone else who's more qualified for it and i followed up with what seems now (laughs) um, several years later such a naive and very privileged white thing to say which was uh, oh the reason i ask is because I'm very interested in Islamic art and I would really like to be able to work with those collections. It's an area I would would really like to pursue. And yes, uh, this uh, Maori student in our cohort turned around in her chair and glared at me and said, well it's not for you to decide, it's not yours to conserve just because you're interested in it. And I didn't get the message straight away and I felt, um, it felt very confrontational, but I've learned that when you live in a kind of a bubble of, of privileged being privileged, being told you can't do things your way, being held accountable for for that, it can feel a bit like intimidation or bullying, but it's just it's just the simple truth. That's part of what um, decolonizing conservation is, which I mentioned in, in my article. It's realizing that um, our university degrees and museum experience, that doesn't systematically qualify us to, to interfere with other people's cultural heritage even if it's with the best of intentions.
0: Mm, Indeed well you carry some of this new sensibility with you in your trip to Indonesia to uh, Ngambien I think it is and this is in search uh, of a particular instrument uh, that you'd found in a collection here I think uh, bundangang. Can you just explain briefly what a Bundang is. I don't think it's something most people come across in their daily lives, at least not in the city.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, well, when I started this project in, 2000, well, I started, when this project hit me in 2016, uh, there was only one Bundangan in Australia uh, at the Monash Music Archive um, and Monash University Music Archive. And it's, it's funny because the first time I saw it, I was kind of horrified by it. It was laying face down on a on a lab bench and uh, it's this very large woven bamboo and um, bamboo sheath, uh, sort of like a skin made from bamboo, uh, woven together like a, a very large uh, triangular basket. And then um, it has black matted coir palm fibers on the top to help it retain its um, impermeable qualities because it was originally designed as a if you can think of it as a raincoat slash umbrella that's balanced on top of the head and uh, it's it's a very um, it's it's quite an intimate instrument because it would have evolved from duck herders apparently were the people who used them the most, at least in um, in the Dieng region, Dieng Plateau, um, sit, you know, walking their ducks and then sitting down you can prop it up, because it's quite large just the, the size of a small child, prop it up with your walking stick and then sit underneath as a shelter so it's gone from umbrella to a small hut and it's got a beautiful resonancy inside um, and If you started by singing perhaps and you'd hear your voice resounding within this this soundboard and then um, it seems a pretty logical conclusion based on all of us who've taken an interest in it that they would have pulled fibers down from the the top from the matted area and strung them between the the bamboo slats and started picking away at them and these amazing metallic tunes which so sound similar to, to Gamelan music um, start coming out and it's, it's very difficult to record or to appreciate uh, as an audience if you're not right up against the Bundingan, sort of inside it because the sound is, is really magical it's sort of um, a very much a 360 degree effect all around you um, but when I first encountered the bundingan, it had no strings. It was forty years old, very dusty, and it looked like something out of, <laughs> of a horror film. I always compare it to um, the little girl climbing out of the TV in the ring with sort of black strands uh, falling around its uh, its face. So. That
0: was how I first met <laughs> Mm, That sounds very horrifying, but it's similar in a way to the story that Lisa Hilly tells of finding the midi shell necklace and feeling very sad when it's lying on its own in the shelf of the museum. And that really drove her to try and give it life and drove you to Indonesia to try and find the Bundang in situ. So yeah, all... what was it like when you first arrived?
1: Um, well first of all the, the main motivation for going to Indonesia is we had no idea what the sound was and what is the point of a musical instrument if it has it can't produce sound. Um and so it initially I was motivated to go there to yes, to see it as you say in situ, hear it, see how it's played, get some field recordings, purchase a new instrument. Um that was all motivated, I guess, by uh, the needs of the, the Monash uh, Music Archive, who were very fond of their Wundangan, but didn't really know what it sounded like. Um, didn't have that much in way of documentation from other uh, researchers. But before I went there, I was fortunate to to talk to a few people who were Engaged in both conservation and music and um, Performance and to understand that the instrument itself is is just a document of uh, Of a musical genre the the instrument is just one small piece of an ontology of performance and so by the time I Reached indonesia because everything was happening very fast. It was my last year of university and I had a lot of papers to write and internships and all these things happening and it's all collating and uh, percolating in my brain and by the time i reached there, i realized the importance of the community the, the people who are playing and hearing the music those that's what we're trying to really understand it's not the instrument um, in isolation so taking uh, the instrument back to australia and recordings back to australia they kind of would still end up frozen in time because nobody would be playing with them Um, and if people did watch it would be really from an outsider perspective you know that sort of curio uh, exoticism that we're really trying to move away from in museum contexts. So whilst I was a complete newcomer to Indonesian culture and definitely to you know i think a lot of australians have spent some time maybe in bali on holiday i had never set foot in indonesia and i went straight to um this tiny village up in the mountains and it was i think such a a fortunate experience to, to just be surrounded by i wouldn't say authentic because uh, by my just by my presence there i'm i'm changing uh, how people are behaving and how people are interacting with me, uh, I still carry that bubble of white privilege everywhere I go, although I try to to be aware of it. Um, but it was just, it was wonderful. They set up a performance for me at the last minute in a in a field, um, and this in, includes. So when I when mention it's in a field in a muddy field, that's because we don't have a nice flat platform. Um, for a performance on a stage and yet uh, the dancers who perform to the music is uh, a woman standing on a man's shoulders, cradling a baby. Um, <laughs> the uh, Yeah, absolutely incredible that they just pulled this all together at the last minute in this bumpy muddy field for me. Uh, obviously in exchange for remuneration it was really important that we pay people for their contributions. Um, so I think their expectation was that I was a somewhat, they were used to people coming and wanting to hear or rather see performances of bundingan and uh, Lenguer dancing, but they weren't so used to people asking about what can we do to ensure that this tradition continues or that even if it evolves, that there's um, a maintenance of, and culture and music um, because there's so much knowledge that can be lost, uh, how to make the instrument, how to tune it, the songs that are played on it, the audiences that appreciate it. So uh, yeah, I think at first they were only sort of curious about this foreign visitor, um, but once we got more comfortable with each other and we were able to better communicate um they was probably the first time that someone was actually interested in more of a a reciprocal arrangement
0: And uh, um, you do talk about something that happened uh, there in terms of social media. Yes. That seemed to be something which really took off. And I think that's interesting because we do find when we did an Indonesia issue that social media, particularly Instagram, can actually be something that brings people together.
1: Yes. And Instagram has been huge in this project. And I'm, I'm really... I'm so grateful that the community in Nagavian pushed me to rejoin Instagram because everybody wanted me to add them. And I actually already had an old account with a couple of you know hipster-type pictures, a puddle reflection, and my lunch, and filters. I lost interest very quickly at the time, so I had to re-download it on the spot and go around adding everyone, um, letting them add me and adding them back. And I've written a lot about using social media as a tool for collaboration. Um, I co-wrote it with a couple of people that I've met through the Boondingham project. Um, But it's also really important, I think, in terms of a community feeling seen and heard. When I left, we continued to have um, snapshots of each other's daily lives. And that's not just me seeing what people in the village are up to. That's also them getting to see what I'm doing in my everyday life when I'm not being a researcher. And that really helps reaffirm, you know, friendships and or well, at least friendliness and trust, um, that you're not going, you're not going away and doing things with uh, the information that you've gathered or that you're not ignoring the information that you've gathered, that you're actually doing something with it. And uh, yeah, since then I've also been, become friends with many of the older generation who prefer Facebook. Um, Uh, So the platform popularity does change from area to area or generation, but I think the great thing with social media is being able to use things like emojis um, or emoticons and photos for transcending those language barriers, um, because I, I mean, obviously there's Google Translate and there's automated translations, but um yeah like the heart eyes emojis and the the thank you emojis and all of this has just been so important in terms of uh perpetuating that goodwill between us and maintaining those relationships so that i've been able to to keep going back um and expressing myself in a way that's appropriate i guess because when i first visited i wasn't I, i i've got this sort of european very gestural going for the hug and the kiss kind of thing and obviously that's not appropriate in an indonesian context and i would often see people looking very solemn and serious and not really know without language how to communicate my enthusiasm and my admiration um and obviously bringing gifts of chocolate and coffee and whatever that's more just a little it's a standard gesture but i really wanted to make it clear that I legitimately admire these people I think they're doing an amazing job and so yeah being connected through social media and sending each other big thumbs up and hugs and photos and all of this uh, it was a really great meeting in the middle of of heartfelt connection as cheesy as that might sound
0: (laughs) Indeed, I've never thought of it like that. So it's offering a a kind of a bridge that didn't exist before for people of radical different cultures and to sustain connections and to build a trust. And uh, so it's interesting how it plays a key role in your story. Let's just jump ahead to somebody who seems to be very important uh, that you came across. Is it Mull? Is that how you say Yes. Um, How did you come across Bumul?
1: So, Bumul is, and that's short for Ibu, um, sort of Mrs. and uh, Muliani is her full name, but everyone calls her Bumul all the time. So, that's how she wants to be referred to, um, to respect to that. And actually, quite amusingly, at one point, um, when we'd been traveling together for quite a while, and I, I really felt such a strong connection to Bumul, and I I referred to her as, you know, in a sense of, uh, my, my sense of our sisterhood as women. And she looked very unimpressed because she's a grandmother and I should know my place. But she, yes, we have a very good relationship, but she's a senior. We're not sisters. <laughs> so, um, Bumul is a music and dance teacher, a very passionate teacher in the Jiang region. And she teaches in a lot of different schools. Um, and I met her through, through Instagram indirectly because she'd done a performance with Bondingan and one of the young men that I connected with on Instagram, uh, Saeed Abdullah, he had, I think, filmed a, a, a few seconds of a performance that she'd done. And so I, I asked him if he could connect me with her. And she is based in a school um, in merto which is just outside... Um, Wanosobo city. And she, when I arrived there, yes, stacks of Bundangan instruments everywhere. It was just the complete opposite of everything that I'd heard up to that moment, which was that Bundangan was a dying art and that nobody was transmitting it. And yet here she was with uh, lots of rowdy schoolchildren um, who weren't averse to using them as uh, shields and Hide and seek and uh, messing around with them, and as a conservator, like conservators are always seen to be imagined to be saying, "Don't touch, it's precious. Um, don't change anything. It's you know this is a, a valuable artifact and you'll break it." But there's something really reaffirming by about seeing multiples of something you thought that was unique, and then seeing children playing with them as if they're just toys because then you see that they're really integrated within the fabric of their everyday lives and there's not a sense of rarity, there's a sense of this is part of our our culture. Um, Bumul does, uh, I guess, uh, focus on the the imagery and the unique, they're, they're visually very unique, so she integrates them within performances, she has children playing simple tunes on them, um, she and her nephew Masyatno, have been exploring, um, experimenting with building mini versions and giant versions. She did a when I visited back in earlier this year in April. They'd made a giant one to project Wayang Kulit performances onto. Um, they they play around a lot with the I guess the visual aspect of it. And she's organised shows of 100 bundengan, so they smash out 100 iterations in a variety of sizes. They're not necessarily authentic to what um, Pak Munir, the maestro of bundengan, would consider, uh, and they're not made with the delicacy and I guess the benefit of decades of experience of Batmarumi, Pakmarumi, um, who is. Uh, that we kind of think of him as the Stradivarius of Bundangan because there's a limited number of them out there. He's not making any more. He's in very ill health. Um, but sometimes, like mass production, as long as it is locally made, I think does have benefits. We we've just we've debated this a, a bit with um, my colleagues in Indonesia. I uh, think ideas of mass production versus authentic. Locally made, you know, handmade, it's all handmade, even if it's mass produced um, in a sense. Um, yeah, so Bumul is a. I'm a bit lost for words sometimes to describe her because she's such a force of nature. But uh, she's definitely been a driving force in getting um, the project, the Making Connections project, off the ground in Indonesia. Um,
0: and what's that project? can you describe it
1: so for a while uh, making making connections is how we banded together we being um, a couple of the the young musicians that I met through Instagram and Bumul, and various uh, mentors and supporters patrons in Australia because when you're applying for grants in I imagine most other places, but in Australia, you have to have a catchy title, a project title, and so the title kind of came before the project. Uh, in that, we knew we wanted to do something to to support Bumul um, and the community in Nagabian, um, but we didn't know exactly what. So, making connections was focusing on like the making aspect, the material knowledge, uh, material culture, and connections was about. Um, bridging Australia and Indonesia Um, and it was a legitimate um, request but the primary motivation for us was just if we can get if we know how much money we've got then we can find out what we can do with it so we had ideas that stretched from you know a gigantic tour of Australia with the full repertoire down to a one-man show which would just be say coming over and doing a couple of talks and performances. and the work that we achieved with Making Connections, I do describe in the article um, performances and collaborations in Indonesia and Australia with various institutions. Um, the University of Melbourne, University of Sydney, and Monash University were all amazing in supporting us. And that really contributed, I think, to making but well, for, for being a stepping stone for the local musicians, the local community in in Sobol, in Nagabian, to get their own ideas and funding for their own sort of a more grassroots initiative. Um, they got to see the range of ideas, the range of um, platforms that they had where they could do contemporary performances with um, other instruments and other art forms and projections, they got to do more formal um, and informal seminars and symposium sort of academic formats and more relaxed formats. So we did these listening parties where people will come and show their videos and play instruments and talk about their experiences of of performing in Indonesia, and the. And we did workshops as well, um, building instruments, uh, both at a b- building mini instruments and stringing uh, large instruments, and all of this they've looked at and then decided what they wanted to do locally. Um, so they, primarily Masaid, Maslukman, and um, the elders, um, Pak Bukori and Pak Munir in Nagavian decided that it was really important to make sure that Bundagan had a strong association with this village where the the majority of the talent was really held Um, and for it not to be I guess disseminated and watered down too much by being um, displayed too far from too far away from home and I guess having a bit more control as well and so they set up their own project called What is Bundingan? And this was the opportunity for them as a larger community, not restricted by being able to speak English or having connections with us in Australia, um, be able to all contribute their ideas and work together. And they, yeah, they put on this amazing event um, in October completely independently really from what we've done with making connections um we even offered to we i say we myself and a couple of other of the australia-based um contributors offered to to do things like manage their social media and they consulted together as a group and said no we want to do everything ourselves because we want to it's we really want to have feel ownership of our project um which i am so so behind, like I really love that. That's what I want. I didn't want to be. Um, lots of people go, oh, you're the, you must be the expert in bondingan, and I think I'm probably the least knowledgeable about bondingan of anyone in our in our group. I don't know how to play it. I can't speak the language. Uh, I don't know how to make one. I watch, I observe a lot, but I, I really am not in a position to tell people what to do. So seeing them take the lead has been the
0: ultimate rewards, I think, an achievement. But Rosie, that seems contrary to your profession as a conservator in a way, aren't you there for your museum to bring back the artifact and uh, hold it in that white cube? Uh, <laughs> or do you think conservation has this bigger remit now?
1: Well, interestingly, just last week I did a presentation via video for the uh, national conference of the Australian Institute of Conservation of Cultural Materials, um, entitled uh, "Conservation and Climate Change: Meaningful Engagement in the Face of Inevitable Near-Term Col- Societal Collapse." Um, this, my conclusions as a conservator, are that all the objects museums and conservators the museum uh cultural heritage profession at this time in history it's never been more important to really really engage with communities and not just you know the world cultures communities uh whose whose culture whose artifacts we looted and stole in previous decades um but our own communities, for, to encourage them to come in and build a sense of social identity, of um, of community. I mean, we, we repeat this word over and over, community, but it is going to be vital because things are changing and it's such a, an unsustainable environment, the museum, um, at least in its white cube formats. Uh, the materials and the resources required to keep things in a perfect condition where they do not degrade requires air conditioning and, re- you know, constantly replacing these uh, non-degradable materials and that um, protect them. And it, it, as you're sealing, you're sort of sealing them off from people in order to prevent their degradation, when actually social memory is what's is where culture really needs to be preserved and so as i was speaking of the the bonding being just a document of that musical genre all cultural heritage all those artifacts they're not standalone um sort of objects to be looked at and admired from afar they only have meaning in a social context and if things go wrong, you know, I'm not hoping for the Mad Max scenario, but if that should happen, I think what will really give people um, motivation moving forward is to have a, a sense of social identity of who they are and where they come from. Um, and part of my research, which I presented last week, was talking about displaced people, such as um, the Rohingya, in, who are now 900,000 strong in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. Or the people of Caribas, uh, the Pacific nation of Caribas who are being displaced by climate change Um, when you're forcibly moved whether it's by conflict or climate or colonization away away from your possessions when you lose everything then it's only what you're able to carry with you in your mind that's going to be able to, to give you a sense of identity and so This kind of comes back to the social media thing. The more we see representation on social media of people using and engaging with Bundangan or other aspects of of cultural heritage, um, the more we're building that social memory, that that muscle memory, so that when things go wrong, (laughs) when we lose everything, when we can't afford, whether we lose funding for museums or um, we lose electricity like there's there's people are carrying memories within them they've seen things they've heard things and they those memories have carry meaning.
0: Mm, That's an extraordinarily important point and I think it uh, beckons some of the issues that Garland as a platform needs to be looking at uh, after it finishes the, the journey you know the role of the artifact and how so much work is now about understanding the skills that enable that artifact to be made rather than just preserving the object itself. But, it, you know, there is the question of how the artifact itself as an object can also sort of galvanize as a sort of a sacred object, uh, you know, a sense of meaning that we do like a singular object to embody something, uh, which an artifact like a kind of an object in a temple, perhaps more than a museum. <laughs> might do that. But uh, thank you so much for opening that up. So we're looking ahead in terms of uh, Bundanang. There was a recent meeting that you uh, mentioned coming up, which is passed now. Um, how do you see the Bundanang project, if you can loosely call it a project, going? What, what do you hear?
1: Um, I, as, as you mentioned, I wasn't able to attend in person. Um. I watched it through Instagram unfolding uh, through the hashtag bunding and tag by following the different accounts, and uh, it's it's always difficult to know um, what's going on behind the scenes when you're just looking through a screen. It looked absolutely spectacular to me, and I am sure that they are going to be able to get funding to repeat this event um, on, on, in future. I think because uh, they they incorporated as I mentioned some of the elements from the Making Connection projects where they had people doing workshops but also they invited uh lecturers from the from the university um of um, Gajamada to talk about uh the science of bonding and like the technology behind it and uh they also had workshops for making the instrument and I think they they want to pursue that, and every time that they successfully pull off uh, an iteration of any of these events, it gives them, it galvanizes them, and it gives them credibility to get more funding. Um, but also, it it reinforces, you know, being a musician is not... Uh, <laughs> Or an artist in any respect is not really a well-funded, a well-paid job. Like most people, have to do it as a, it's almost in a volunteer sense. It's a community um, contribution, <laughs> and the more they can get support and recognition, the more they're going to be able to do this on a. The more opportunities there are for paid for performances, for um, teaching opportunities for them as well, sort of all kinds of paid engagements, which will allow them to keep pursuing this. Uh, long term. So they're also trying to um, sort of backwards engineer the Stradivarius beautiful instruments that were previously made by um, Pakmarumi so that they can try and recreate that quality of sound. And they're doing that in in collaboration with engineers at Galjamadha through a national geographic grant, actually, which is also very... Impressive in terms of clout, um, whatever one's personal feelings may be about National Geographic. Um, so I think like the future is really encouraging um, for for the What is Bundengang crew, and they document as much as they can on Instagram. So it does mean that anybody who's interested can look up the hashtag, which is B U N G. I just realized I can't spell it without looking at it.
0: We'll include, a, we'll include a link, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's on your website. So, uh, obviously, that's, that's continuing. What about you? You're in Taiwan. Uh, uh, what sort of stories can we expect from you in the future?
1: Well, I am incredibly lucky to be in the job that I have where I really love working with textiles and... There's so much to unpack about, you know, the importance of textiles, which Garland does such a fantastic job of exploring the different meaning, different significances of of textile in different locations to different people, um, from the production to the, you know, the the community values that they can have. Um, And I also seem to be incapable of not writing. (laughs) So I've got every project that I do, Another idea for a paper or an article pops into my head so it does seem that in the long run I'm going to spiral into this uh, research around performance and conservation um, and do perhaps some doctoral studies in that area but for now I really love living in Taiwan particularly down here in the south I've lived in the north before in Taipei but down here very very relaxed and uh, perfectly suited to someone who just needs to think a lot about culture and conservation uh, which is such a luxury
0: well we're very glad to to have you there rosie and uh, look forward to to more stories from the south of taiwan thank you so much for sharing what is a much bigger story than I ever imagined from what was already a big story. So go well, thank you. Thank you
1: very much.